Hey, J. Crew, it's Mark. We recorded this week's episode before we got the very, very sad news that Rabbi Yaakov Moshe Maza, better known to the world as Jackie Mason, had died. In a way, the entirety of this week's episode, which is basically two middle-aged Jewish men telling body jokes, is a tribute to Jackie Mason and his legacy. To Jackie Mason, we say, Baruch Dayan HaEmet, blessed is the true judge, and to his family and all those who loved him, we ask that God comfort you among the mourners of Zion and Jerusalem. And hey, Jackie, give our love to Joan Rivers. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined this week by tablet editor-at-large, Leah Leibovitz. Shalom, shalom, shalom. And we are staring at an empty third chair. The balance of the room is off. It's just a duo this week because Stephanie Taylor Butnick is at home with her new baby, the lovely and beautiful podcast princess, scion of podcast royalty, Edith Isadora Cohen born last week, as we taped last week's show. The perfectly named Edith Isadora. Stephanie, we leave the door to this podcast open. We leave a microphone on the table, awaiting what we are certain is you joining us in spirit. It's going to be a difficult three months without Mama Stephanie on the pod. We have some fun stuff lined up. We have some guest hosts. We have some special episodes. We're going to muddle through and do the best that we can. Lest you think it's just us two dude bros who are just going to talk about <laughs> tweed and corduroys and drinking gin yep. and being bros. This is not the case. To be clear, there will be more than the usual portion of all that. <laughs> However, we are not going to inflict only that on all of you. We have just a lot of wonderful stuff lined up, taking us through Jewish year 5782 in September and beyond until we welcome Stephanie Butnick back into the hosting chair, but for the for the meantime, Hillary Clinton is is a is a future guest host of the show. Oprah Winfrey, Michelle Obama, Amy Poehler, Maya Rudolph. Yep, none of them could replace. All of them together could not replace Stephanie Taylor Butnick. But we will do our best. If we tried to replace Stephanie Taylor Butnick with Michelle Obama, Laura Bush, Ivanka <laughs> Trump, and Oprah. <laughs> And Sippy Livney, the Facebook group would revolt. The J Crew would not hear of it. That is how crucial Stephanie Butnick is to this show. And we are sad to not be with her, but we are elated for her and Ben and all of the Butnicks and Cohens. So on a somewhat private note, forgive me to just one listener in the J Crew. Reese Witherspoon, we're sorry. We know you wanted this gig, but uh, <laughs> it's not happening. Go back to your book club. For this week, however, it is just me and Liel. We have nothing special planned, except a lot of special stuff, actually. We're airing my and Stephanie's interview, from back when Stephanie was with us, with Jaron Lewison, who plays Ben Gross on the extraordinary Netflix show, Never Have I Ever. Our Gentile of the week, the guy we've been calling the lobster goy behind his back, is Andrew Gruel. He's a tzaddik. He's a righteous Gentile, in the truest sense of the word. He is a lobster restaurant chef who said that, you know what, it's not right that this great Traif treat will only be available to those who could pay, you know, a pretty penny for it. And so he offered anyone who couldn't afford a lobster roll and wanted to come and enjoy this delicacy, he just offered free lobster rolls to, you know, people who couldn't afford them, which is such a beautiful charitable act of chesed. What an unimprovable Gentile of the Week in so many ways. I hope he hears Lobster Goy with all the affection that I now intend for it. <laughs> you basically created the, the world's worst superhero. <laughs> <laughs> Very thick Boston accent. He's a he's a lobster restaurateur by day and lobster goy by night. He was bit by a radioactive lobster and now he has these claws that, and he feeds the poor. So all that on the show this week and also a little bit later on the show, a family drama from the Oppenheimer Kirshner extended family that will honestly have you sitting on the edge of your seats. It involves lost love, lost children, lost uncles, family mysteries, family secrets. And the, the kicker is... I need to ask the J. Crew's help in solving a 90-year-old mystery. But first. News of the Jews. N-O-T-J. News of the Jews. Uh-huh. A little news of the Jews. And if you've been anywhere in the Jewish media sphere this week, you, you caught the story of how Ben & Jerry's American division, which is, say, the, the big division, the prime division of Ben & Jerry's, is not going to allow its Chunky Monkey or Cherry Garcia or Brood to Matter. I could go on all day. Believe me, I know the, I know the inventory very well. 
to be sold in the West Bank of Israel-Palestine. And this, of course, has brought all sorts of condemnation, people who say that this is taking part in an anti-Semitic boycott. It's brought huzzahs from people who support it. Leah, what, what has this story brought from you? Consternation. Just a deep sense of face plant. So look, I'm the kind of guy who calls it Judea and Samaria. I'm the kind of bearded yarmulke wearer that you would think would get all up in arms because the anti-Semites are boycotting Israel. I could not think of a stupider reason to be upset than this, you know, I don't want to say nothing burger because I don't want to mix my milk and meat. This, this, <laughs> this, this pint of nothing. Here's the thing, guys. We're grownups. And if Zionism ever had an ethos, it's we don't actually give a Fabrengen what you do or what you think. We're going to do our own. And Israel's ice cream, if you've eaten even like a lick, you know, a spoonful, you know that you could get in every street corner in Tel Aviv. Ice cream that is like far freaking superior. Here's what I say to Ben and Cherries. We believe Yudan Shemur and Judea and Samaria, which some of you call the West Bank and some of you even call the occupied territories. We believe that's our homeland. We believe that is ours by right, by the end of the Bible. And if you don't like it, you don't have to sell us ice cream. And you know what? Maybe we won't buy it anyway because we don't freaking care to spend so much time and energy freaking out or saying we should abolish their kashras or not sell them in supermarkets. Like life is way too short to worry about like which ice cream brand you can and cannot eat. And their ice cream isn't isn't great anyway. Okay, so unsurprisingly, I have a slightly different position. Allow me to repair diaspora relations from all the damage you just did to it. Diaspora relations with whom? With Vermont? Yeah, look. I once was really into the Vermont independence movement, and that's a story for another show. But Vermont Vermont localism and Vermont secessionism is actually one of my hobbies. Gee, I wonder why people in Vermont couldn't get it together to actually secede from the <laughs> Hey, man. What, what might have just, happened? You just let me and Robert handle the New England stories, okay? Well, you let us be the New England correspondents. <laughs> me and Scaramucci are the Massachusetts boys, the mass holes here. Just to clarify for our listeners, there were some people who said the kosher certification of Ben & Jerry should be revoked because it's now tainted by their anti-Semitism. That's literally not what anyone needs is the politicization, uh, the further politicization of kosher certification. Right. Th that's bad no matter what you think about the boycott. Agreed. Look, let me say a few things here. First of all, let me issue a corrective. Ben & Jerry's ice cream is really pretty terrific. And I say that as somebody with about four flavors in my freezer upstairs right now. And there's been a little internecine squabbling in our family because Clara, my almost 11-year-old, has recently discovered how great Brewed to Matter, which is a special flavor that in Greater New Haven is only sold at Target, weirdly. She's discovered how great it is and she's now not content with her like generic vanilla anymore. She wants in on my gourmet Brewed to Matter. It's very good ice cream. It's not the best, but it's very, very good. So that's number one. To be clear, I will not be giving up Ben & Jerry's no matter what they do. They could fund January 6th revisionism. They could be anti-vaxxers and I'd probably still eat the stuff. I just got to be honest. I got to come clean about where my ethics, food ethics are, which is like, I just, I'm not taking- You have your priorities straight. I'm just not taking that one for the team. You're a fribble kind of guy. That's that's right. I need my friendlies fribbles and I re need my- You, you are, if, if I may coin a term here, frivolous. Ugh, how dare you? Well, you know what? I'll own that. I will own that. The other thing I just want to say, and, and I don't have a, a lot more to add to this. I, first of all, I like the idea that your vision of Zionism is like, the Jews need a homeland of their own to make their own goddamn ice cream. That's basically That's what, exactly like, right. as Herzl said, like, we will know that we've arrived when a Jewish cop can arrest a Jewish John with a Jewish whore having ice cream cones made by Jewish dairy farmers. Like that's- If you scoop it, it is no dream. <laughs> that's right. So I like that. But I do want to finally say, you know, I actually am not, I think people should feel free to vote with their pocketbooks. And I don't think there's anything inherently anti-Semitic about saying we're not going to sell ice cream in this place or that place. There's a lot to disagree with about Israeli policy in the West Bank. And that's a perfectly legitimate target. And by the way, of course, this is like now seen as the moderate position, which is we'll keep selling in Israel. We just won't sell in the occupied territories. Here's the problem, right? And, and a lot of the listeners I know are, are nodding along with me, which is so many of the people who choose to take this stance don't care about the fact that, you know, China has the Uyghurs in concentration camps and are using them as slave labor, don't care about the fact that we have crazy vaccine denialism going on in half the states in America, don't care about the fact, you know, of Assad in Syria. They really do have an Israel obsession. And it would be as if, and I always use this example, it would be as if somebody's obsession, only foreign policy obsession, were the war crimes in Liberia, but nothing else. And at a certain point, you'd say like, 
do you have a thing with Africa, right? And, and the reality is so many people who are involved in these boycott movements, not all of them by any means, but so many of them, if you go into a room with 20, you know you're in there with some really bad anti-Semites. That's a huge problem for Israel activism, right? It's like, how do you commit any activism without hanging with people who really don't care about your own safety or your well-being and kind of wish your religion would disappear? And I don't have a good answer to that. But I, I, I don't feel like if Ben and Jerry's is taking a holistic stance toward justice in the world, this is the fight that they pick. This, this, this is where to start. I agree with that wholeheartedly. But there is one uptick to this whole story, which is the, the unbelievable slew of just really bad but delightful puns. Ice cream puns? on on Ben and Jerry's ice cream flavors, which, you know, supporters of Israel imagine the company will now produce. Do you want to hear my top three? Yeah. What, okay, good. I have one to add, but you go ahead. So first of all, there's Mintifada. Which I think is pretty, pretty good. okay. It's pretty good. Uh, there is from the river to the sea, salt and caramel. Nice. I would totally I'd eat that. And finally, my favorite, which by the way, if this is the real flavor, I'm I'm saying right now, Unilever, whoever whoever owns Ben and Jerry's, like you make this, I'm buying it. Ready for this? <laughs> Yasser Arafaj. Ooh. Oh yeah. Pretty great. <laughs> That's pretty great. Thank I you. I was internet. just sitting back. I was sitting back in my own in my own recliner. And thinking that I want them to do some sort of play on Mossad. That's that's my only request. <laughs> is I want something that's to do with like top secret Mossad fudge. That's all I got. That's all I've got. So from us political mavens here in Unorthodox, chill the Fabrengan out. Chill and the Fabrengan out. Ice cream out. and love Israel or don't or do whatever you want. Life is way too short. Amen. Also in the news of the Jews, Tel Aviv is worried about all the unscooped dog poop. So they are now proposing a plan where they're going to require you to register your dog's DNA with a little stool sample. And then if they find untended, unscooped poop on the ground, they will test it. And if it matches your dog's DNA, they will send you a fine in the mail. I have to tell you, I knew that the Law & Order franchise was running out of ideas. But <laughs> <laughs> this is really... In the Tel Aviv criminal justice system, dog owners are represented by two separate yet equal authorities. The municipality that collects the poop and CSI dog poop. Uh, this is so delightful. Sometimes I really, I really love my country. It ends up leading to the murder of some, you know, 19-year-old super foxy dog walker who has 10 dogs out on a leash every day. You know, she has the AirPods in, she's bopping to some Euro trash, Euro pop music, and she's got nine dogs and three of them end up dead. And then she ends up dead. And the question is, which of the three dogs owners who got the fine because she didn't clean up after their poop went after her? Now, you know who would be very happy with a scenario involving dead dogs? Who's that? The answer is cats. Yes. Which leads me. <laughs> to my next and supremely important story out of Israel. Longtime listeners of this year podcast will remember that, that we habitually discuss what we call the Meowschwitz, which is the problem of feral cats in mm -hmm. Israel. Mm -hmm. Several Israeli politicians have previously called for a final solution, if you will, not, <laughs> not Yasmin Sachs Friedman. The newest member of Knesset from the Yair Lapid's Yesh Atid party, who this week used her inaugural speech at the Knesset to talk not about the Iranian threat, not about state and religion, not about poverty or education or COVID or literally any one of like 19 existential life-threatening crises that her constituents actually cared about, but about, could you guess? The cat problem. But about cats. I want to play a little bit and translate just the first few lines so you understand the vibe. Here, here goes. אני דור אבי למאכילות חתולים. אנינה של אספרנסה שהייתה מאכילת חתולים ידועה עוד בקורפו. חונכתי על המשפט כי זה המאכיל חיה רעבה מזין את נפשו. I am a fourth generation cat feeder. The great granddaughter of Esperanza who was a renowned cat feeder all the way back in the island of Corfu. And not only did member of Knesset Friedman talk about her love of feeding cats, she suggested that the Israeli government must now redeem itself and avoid the Miauschwitz by creating the National Feline Authority, or the NFA, <laughs> <laughs> a second only to the to the Mossad and the Shin Bet in its order of national priority in order to solve this problem. Member of Knesset Friedman, you are the Anne Frank of the Meowschwitz. Would the authority be the Meowsad? The, the Meowsad will take care of everything. 
I think that nothing tops that. Certainly not the bit of injury inflicted on the Jewish people by the University of Wisconsin, which has 4,000 Jewish undergrads, 13% of their population, and has announced that school will start this year on what holiday? You guessed it, Rosh Hashanah. University of Wisconsin at Madison Chancellor Rebecca Blank apologized for this. Having set this in stone and having made a mistake and, you know, having now owned it, they can't really fix it because if they pushed the opening of school just one day more, then the last day of exams would take place on Christmas Eve, which is just perfect because it sort of says like, well, you know, sorry, Jews, you know where you stand in the packing order. But I actually, I will one-up your ice cream counterintuitiveness here, Liel, and say that I am on record as saying that I don't actually think that Gentile or largely Gentile institutions have to take days off for their Jewish minorities. I think that actually part of being a minority people is sometimes we have to make small sacrifices. And in this case, it might be skipping a day of class and going to shul and getting the homework later. Now, to be fair, this puts the professors in a very, very bad position. And it is a huge screw up, right? Because you actually don't want all these other students coming to the first day of class and not having their professors there. But you know, I just feel like hold class at like midnight two days later and just require the kids to zoom in. Or I mean, it's college. They're all up all the time anyway. So I feel like this is solvable. But I want to say one other thing here as I was thinking about this. I'm, I'm really interested in this question of like taking days off for Jewish holidays because, and I've talked about this on the show, my own kids get Rosh Hashanah off in their public school, even though they are literally among the maybe fewer than 10, six or seven Jews in a 400 person school that has no Jewish teachers anymore. The last one retired a couple years ago. So it's just this, this leftover from a time when there were a lot of Jewish public school teachers and a lot of Jews in New Haven, in our neighborhood who went to public school. And now there just aren't, but they keep taking the days off. Here's the thing. Yes, University of Wisconsin is still 13% Jewish. Yale, which used to be 25 or 30% Jewish, is probably 9 or 10% Jewish. Now, frankly, like we're kind of shrinking in our influence. And part of what we have to deal with is the fact that a lot of these universities that used to have thousands of people going to Rosh Hashanah services now have fewer people who identify as Jewish. And of those who do, a lot of them are from families with very attenuated practices. And they're not going to, they don't want to skip anyway. So the whole fight is almost like this wishful thinking that it was 25 or 30 years ago when Hillel services got thousands of people on Rosh Hashanah, which they just don't anymore. I don't mean to downgrade your very beautiful and, and, and heartfelt creed occur, but you know, when I heard the story, the thing that occurred to me, and occasionally this really baffles me. Now, I understand that Gentiles have their own calendar. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. But when, when, how do they know when things fall? Because, like, for me, it's very easy. Like, you know, Aleph Tishrei is the first day of, you know, like Nisan is, is Pesach and, you know, Adar is Purim. With them, it's, cha- it's well, wait, changing wait. always, right? They have these, they have these months. Here's like, the thing. <laughs> oh, oh, it's in September this year. Oh, no, no that's in November. How, how do, how do they know what month it is? Your ignorance is so beautiful. Like, it's, this is a guy raised with no Christian friends at all. So you know that Christmas Eve is always the same, right? I mean, I do, I, I suppose. Do you? You know that Christmas is December 25th. And so the night before is December 24th. That's always true. The big mystery, and here I want to pull in our lobster goy, Robert Scaramuccia, is Easter. Because actually nobody knows how they know when Easter and Lent fall. Robert, raised in the bosom of Roman Catholicism. I think it's a pagan thing. It's after like the first half moon, after the second full moon. <laughs> It's not Gimel Nissan every year? <laughs> Is that Nissan? That's a car brand? I'm really lost. <laughs> I think you're making this up. I don't think you have any idea, do you? I just, we have ordinary time. It's a lot of fun being Catholic. That's all I can say. <laughs> he has no idea. He has no. no idea. I think it has something to do with the moons. I think it's also lunar. Like, I know when Tisha B'Av is. Right. How do they know when school starts? It's really, it's very hard being being not Jewish. Anyway, University of Wisconsin, President Rebecca Blank, I hereby, I give you a heter. It's okay. We're forgiven. We're going to hug it out. Bush, bush, hug, hug. You're not an anti-Semite. We don't, we don't want to go to any of your failing schools. <laughs> Just for a quick Easter update, the answer to determining the date of Easter. Producer Josh Cross is dependent upon anti-Semitism because they used to base it around the date of Passover, but the church decided it didn't want to do that. So now Easter is calculated on the first Sunday after the Paschal full moon, which is the full moon on or after 21st of March, which roughly lands at Passover. So they just didn't want to blame us. They just wanted that. As I said, I have no idea how the Gentiles tell time. <laughs> Holy cow, though. Scaramucci was kind of right. It kind of, it does have to do with looking up at the moon and saying, oh, time for Easter. It is the first full moon after the spring equinox is what I found. <laughs> it's the first, 
It's the first full moon after the birth of the first baby conceived the previous September. That's how you know what Easter is. The first full moon after you go to the Equinox gym uh, up the block on the Upper East Side. <laughs> Yo, a while back, you told Stephanie and I an absolutely incredible story that is even more incredible because it happens to be true and even more, more incredible because it happens to be a story about your family. And we thought that it might be time to ask the J. Crew for help. Can, can you tell them the story? Yeah, it's time to crowdsource this old family mystery. So thank you for asking, Liel. My grandfather, Walter Kirchner, was born in 1910. I loved my grandfather. And uh, I'm actually I'm kind of writing something about him based on, on letters he wrote to my grandmother when they were courting in 1930. Long story short, they met when they were teenagers in 1931, when he was not yet 21 years old. A few months before he turned 21, they got married. Seven months later, my uncle was born. So you can understand why they married. And then nine years after that, they had my Uncle Bob. And three years after that, they had my mom and end up with 12 grandchildren and many, many great-grandchildren. Here I am. And I loved my grandfather very, very much. He was a, a school teacher and a carpenter and a, a good guy who, who loved me a lot. To be clear for those listeners keeping score at home, this is not the grandfather who had some wives. Correct. This is not my father's father who had six wives. This is my mother's father, who, as far as we knew, was a monogamous guy for his, whatever, 60 years of marriage. He didn't drink. He didn't smoke. He was a very abstemious and, and upright fellow. He was the grandfather I was very, very close to. I mean, he was outside of my parents and siblings. He's certainly the person who influenced me the most in my life. And he died in 2006. He had actually always, I'll tell you something a little touching. He, he uh, told me when he was in his 90s and nearing the end, he said, I hope I live long enough to hold your daughter on my lap. And he missed it by four months. He died in August of 06 and Rebecca was born in December of 06. So he, he lived long enough to see Sid pregnant, but not to hold Rebecca. Anyway, in the months before he died, maybe three, four months before he died, he was pretty lucid up until the end. He told me, and as it turned out, a few other people, including a sibling of mine, including my mother, that there had been another child. And we said, well, like, grandpa, what do you mean? And he said, well... And I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but this is pretty much literally what he said. He said, um, when your grandmother was pregnant, there was another woman who was pregnant. And um, we had that baby. And we went to New York to Mrs. Wise's adoption agency. And we gave up the baby for adoption. And this was, you know, a few months before I married your grandmother. And then Rick was born. So basically the story was, and I, you know, he told it to me. I later kind of felt it out with, with my brother and mom kind of was like, did grandpa tell you something kind of crazy? And they're like, oh my God, did he tell you that as well? And he had. So basically his story was that he had had two women pregnant at once and the other one had the baby and they drove the baby to New York. And Mrs. Wise was Louise Wise, who was the wife of mm. Stephen Wise, the great reform rabbi after whom there's a temple in New York named after him. There's one in LA. Stephen Wise was like the prince of reform Jews in America in the 1920s, 30s, 40s. His wife was Louise Wise, and she ran the Louise Wise Agency, which was the Jewish adoption agency. If you had a Jewish baby you wanted to give up for adoption anywhere in the Northeast, you took the baby to Louise Wise. And if you wanted to adopt a Jewish baby anywhere in America, you called Louise Wise. So they took the baby to Mrs. Wise in New York City uh, from Philly and gave her the baby. So, you know, I, if this was true, I knew that this baby was born sometime in 1930, 31 and would be, you know, 90 years old if still alive. And this would be my mother's lost older brother. And so about a year or two ago, we wrote to the Louise Wise agency, my mother did, and said, you know, here's my deal. And they said, well, how, you have to, if you send us your birth certificate, we will know that you are in fact the daughter of this father we have on our own records, this birth father. She did. They said, okay, you're Joanne Kirshner Oppenheimer. Your father was Walter Kirshner. Yes, we did. They wrote back. This came last week. This is late breaking news. They wrote her a letter that said, in fact, Walter Kirshner did come in in 1931 with a mother and a baby and signed that baby over for adoption. The baby was born June 15th, 1931. And his name is Jimmy Carter. Right. <laughs> exactly. His name was Shimon Perez. Um, <laughs> and, and then the letter goes on to say, we can't tell you who the adoptive parents were by name, but we can give you a lot of information about all of this. And it's then a two to three page letter that basically says enough, including their ages, the region of the country they were from, 
the line of work that they were in, how many other children they have. It's enough that I think that if I read this letter to the thousands of members of the J. Crew, that somebody out there is going to say, that's a story in my family. That sounds a lot like Aunt Dolores. Yeah, that's what's going to happen. Who adopted that boy and that boy grew up and became my first cousin once removed, Morris, the watchmaker or something. I just think if you if you listen to me read this letter, somebody out there is going to drop their morning coffee and it's going to shatter and they're going to say, oh my God, Mark's uncle is in fact this guy who was adopted into my family. And I think that's going to happen. That is amazing. So here's what we're going to do. After the credits, if you're interested in this mystery, and you should be because it is amazing and the letter is amazing, stick around after the credits. Mark is going to read this incredible letter. He's going to give you clues. And if these clues, that description sounds like anyone at all, you think, you know, get in touch. Mark, how do we get in touch? So the first thing is the letter, just so you know, you're signing up for about five minutes. If you stick around after the credits at the end, or you could zoom forward in the podcast, listen to him now if you want, but it's two to three single space pages. You're signing up for about five minutes. If this rings a bell, then you'll email me at moppenheimer at tabletmag.com, or you can call our listener line as you can call us with anything, including bird sightings, ditties you've made up, lotto ticket premonitions, 914-570-4869. Again, 914-570-4869. You can also freely reproduce this. You can take a grab of it, put it on Twitter. I don't care. But I think that we can find this long lost branch of my family. Oh, one more poignant bit before we wrap this up. I said to my grandfather, whatever became of that mother, you know, the, the other woman who you didn't marry because you chose grandma. And he said, um, she never married and never had a child again. And she died a few years ago. I saw her obituary. She was an acting teacher at the Hedgerow Theater in uh, Media, Pennsylvania, which is a kind of well-known regional theater. And he said um, she spent her life at the Hedgerow Theater and died a few years ago, and her obituary was in the New York Times. And I went and found that person, and her name was Rose Shulman, and you can find her obituary in the New York Times. And that was the baby's biological mother. But that doesn't get us very far what gets as far as the letter that I'm going to read to you after the credits. And I want to thank you guys in advance for being my J. Crew and my family. And I want to thank Liel and the rest of the team for indulging me in this little bit of, uh, of family lore. All right, a super special Jew of the Week. Jaron Lewison plays Ben Gross on the unbelievably awesome Netflix show Never Have I Ever, which Sid and I have binged the heck out of. The second season just came out. Stephanie and I talked to him about growing up a Texas Jew, keeping up an acting career while rushing ZBT at the University of Southern California. That's Zeta Beta Tau. It is one of the top five Jewish fraternities. And what it's like to give America its impression of a Jewish high schooler in the year 2021. Here's our conversation with Jaron Lewison. Our Jew of the Week is Jaron Lewison. You know him as Ben Gross from the extraordinarily bingeable TV show Never Have I Ever, produced, created by Mindy Kaling. And he's the token Jew on the show. Welcome, Jaron. How are you? Thank you. I'm so proud to be the token Jew of the Week. This is really exciting for me. It's my first one. For those of our viewers who haven't seen the show, tell them what this show is that I'm so excited about. Basically, this show was created by Mindy Kaling and Lane Fisher, and it follows events from Mindy Kaling's life. It's based on events from her life, but it's not actually about Mindy. It's about a fictional 15-year-old South Asian Tamil girl named Devi Vishwakumar. And it basically follows her world, her experience navigating through high school and kind of how she finds her identity as a South Asian woman and as a young teen growing up in Sherman Oaks High. And you play a role that I think it's funny because all of us have this role from high school. You're a frenemy. You're the rival for debate team, math team, yes. fencing team, et cetera. But then also you're kind of into each other because you're the only ones worthy of being each other's rival. Whoa, spoiler for the people that haven't oh, seen. Oh, sorry, I'm not kind of into each other. I don't say where it goes. <laughs> you only have to see the first episode of, of season one to know you're kind of into each other. But here's my question. So you are a little older than the character you play. The character you play is what, 15? Yeah, he turned 16 actually in season one. And you're in college. You're at USC, right? So we're, how old are you? I'm 20. 20. A real 20 or like a Holly? Are you actually like 27, but you're telling us 20? I am legitimately actually... 20. I was born in 2000. That's how I remember my age. Whatever year <laughs> it is, that's how old I'm turning. When you first auditioned for this part, you must have been 
19 auditioning for the part of a 14-year-old or something like this. How was this show pitched to you? When your agent came to you and said, you're going to do this show, was it like, what was the pitch? What did you think you were getting into? When I was pitched the show, they had said... Mindy Kaling, and that's all I needed, to be honest with you. Right. But the arc was not actually given. And funny enough, when I was cast, the purpose of Ben Gross was not to be part of this love triangle that actually came after I had met with my Trey, who plays Davey, who's our lead. And Darren Barnett had met her as well, that they had decided that it was going to be a love triangle. So it was not originally pitched to me as a romantic lead or anything like that. I, I auditioned. From Dallas, which is where I'm from, I filmed a scene on tape and then I sent it in. And then while I was at my freshman orientation, I was 18, I got a call saying they wanted me to screen test. And for those who don't know, that basically means there's probably around four or five left. And they said if I wanted to go in person, I could meet some of the team, the the creative team and... I went and did my scenes and it wound up working out and I moved to LA about three weeks later. You were at your freshman orientation for college or did you transfer? Were you going to go to like Texas A&M and you're like, well, I better be in LA. No, USC was always my dream school. I grew up a Texas kid and you know, UT was always, my sister graduated from there and that was always a top choice. But I went to tour colleges and the plan was initially to go to school and audition at the same time. And then I got lucky that I got into USC. It was my dream school. I stepped on campus and was like, this is it when I went on my tour. And then I got in. And then before I even started classes, I had a full-time job on a incredible Netflix show. So I now have seen, again, everything you've done for Netflix, as far as I know. I mean, I'm, I'm deep into your oeuvre. But <laughs> if there were shows before that, I don't know what they are. Did you do a lot of time on like, New Disney Club? Is there is there like stuff my kids would know about that you were on that I didn't know about? I did a Nickelodeon pilot when I was 10 and that was probably would have been the only thing, but it didn't get picked up, unfortunately or fortunately. And this is really my first series regular that I've carried through a season. And luckily we have season two coming out and fingers crossed for season three. This is the first time that I've been able to carry a character throughout seasons and to arc in different ways. And this is really exciting for me. So I, I want to get back to the show, which I really think is an interesting and wonderful piece of art. Yeah. But first, I want to ask you stupid questions about celebrity. So what's awesome about this? Like here you are the past years or two, you've kind of the show has blown up and I imagine you with it. Like what's the best thing about it? I think interacting with fans. As an actor, like you always think about, oh, I wonder if people are going to see my work and like it. Or like, I wonder if this will mean something to people. And for me, when people come up to me and they are so excited and are like breathing heavy or whatever, or like ask to take a picture and they're like, hey, I absolutely love this show. I love this moment and this moment and this character. And it really made me feel seen. And I think that like our show is so diverse that literally no matter what age you are, no matter what community you're from, ethnicity, anything like that, you can find something in our show that you can relate to. I think that it is so relatable and diverse that people come up to me and it's just people that I would never even think would have seen the show. Like I was in a Thai restaurant and there was like a really big 50 year old, like Jack dude, he's got tattoos. And like, he just smacked me on the arm, like real hard. And I was like, Oh no, like what did I do to insult this man? And he was like, I just wanted to tell you, I freaking love your show. My daughter loves your show. It's awesome. Keep up the good work. Ah. That is really cool. I, I can imagine. You mentioned the diversity of the cast. I mean, it, the, yeah. the main character is a Tamil American. Growing up, you went to a conservative day school in Dallas, a uh, Jewish kid from Dallas. Have you had to bone up a little on, on Tamil culture? Uh, what's the research you do? Although I guess Ben Gross doesn't necessarily have to know. Your character can be a blithering idiot when it comes to this stuff. But <laughs> like, what did you do to step into the world that the show's protagonist really is, is from? You know, education and representation is super important. And this show is really groundbreaking for a lot of the things that it represents. And for me as an actor, yeah, it is doing a lot of research about Tamil culture and understanding a lot about their people and all that kind of stuff. And luckily, my Trey Ramakrishnan, who plays Davy, our lead, is Tamil, and she actually was a really big resource for me, a primary resource, and she was able to explain to me kind of her experience, her family's experience, and help me understand a lot about the celebration of culture that we find in our show, and about other things about the show that I might not even realize. For example, Ben goes over for dinner in episode six. They are eating with their hands. That's something that I wasn't familiar with at first, and they told me because I went to go grab for the fork because that's how I grew up eating. And then I started eating with my hands and just kind of learned about that. And it's 
you know, small little things I think are really important, especially for being authentic in this representation. So as far as I can tell, you're the one Jewish character on the show. We have talked on our show about your character who, if this were the only Jewish family one knew, one would not think well of Jews because super materialistic, bad parenting. It's the negative stereotypes we knew about, plus some that we didn't know about. Is that something that you've thought about in portrait? Obviously, you know, it's a sample size of one. It's not like you're supposed to stand in for all of Jewry, but it is noticeable for those of us in the Jewosphere that like, we don't get an awesomely happy Jewish family on TV. Yeah, I think that firstly, this is the story of Ben, right? This is his life. And for Ben, who is a very loud, brash character at the beginning of season one, we get to understand that this absent parenting and things like that, because his dad is such a big time lawyer, we get to understand that. And I, I don't really see it as a negative. I, I see it a bit more as a positive. I think that getting to be a Jewish actor and portraying a Jewish character, you get to talk about things like Ben references his bar mitzvah. And I think that that's great that that's something that we talk about. I heard Blake Griffin was there. Yeah, exactly. Which I like, that's so freaking cool. But I think that for me, being Jewish is a part of my identity and there's pros and cons, like any part of my identity, being from Texas or um, now learning as a college student or things like that. Not everything is always going to seem positive, but I think that for me, it is positive getting to show these aspects of Judaism and of Ben and of his family, because that helps me find the, the humility in Ben and in that family. And yes, there are flaws, but it's authentic to who Ben is and, and his portrayal and his world and his experience is unique in its own. For sure. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, the idea that the dad is a wealthy but absentee dad entertainment lawyer in LA will not be foreign to all the Jews that listen to this show. <laughs> but I actually, you know, definitely your character has a serious Jewish identity. My sense is you might know even more Judaism than your character does. Yeah. In next year's episode, could you sneak in a minor holiday? Could we get a mention <laughs> of a Tishabov or Tom Gedalia, the official holiday of Unorthodox? Could we get in a minor fast day? <laughs> Could you talk to Mindy about that? Yeah, yeah. I will I will see what I can do. See if maybe uh, Ben builds a, a sukkah or something yes. like that. I'll maybe goes to shul and read some Torah. We'll, we'll see. We'll see if I can throw that in there. I'll see what I can do. What I want to know is what it's like to have Andy Samberg like voice your inner monologue. I still fucking can't believe it. <laughs> I mean, I feel like every young Jewish actor is in love with Andy Samberg. Maybe I'm speaking for all Jews. He is so... So funny. His delivery is just mind-boggling to me that he can literally make everything sound hilarious. I really hope that I get to work with him one day because I think that there's so much that I could learn from him. And I sometimes still, I will go back and watch that episode because I want to hear him narrate my thoughts. And I pretend often that wherever I am in my normal life, that Andy is still with me. He's still doing it. In my head. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there's the love triangle between you and Paxton for our protagonist's affection. And there's a, a pro and con list, of course, of for both of you. And one of your pros is that you are hella rich, which, you know. Yes. <laughs> and one of the cons is that you have, quote, hairy forearms. Yes. So I feel like you're usually wearing like kind of like a good button down. Like you're usually like nice and preppy on the show. I actually don't know. Do you have hairy forearms? Oh, yeah. Do you have to have them for the show? Can I see them? <laughs> it was not a requirement to play Ben Gross originally, the hairy forearms. Uh, that was my own natural element to you the brought character. brought that to the role. I yeah. did. I brought that from, from home. Yeah, I am just a, I'm a hairy dude. I've got hairy forearms. <laughs> I, I saw on Twitter that there was a, a huge debate about if that was a pro or a con. And it was really lively about people saying that it was a pro, actually, and not a con, which I thought was really funny. But I, I do have hairy forearms. My legs are just as hairy, if not more. And it's just, it's now a part of Ben. So you're welcome, Ben. While we're on the topic of, of your pheromones and sort of sexual vibe. <laughs> your hirsuteness. I'm now remembering the conversation we had about your character, you know, a good year ago on our show. I remember the conversation that we had about this character. I was very curious, for example, if you're playing like this guy, what does that do for your own dating life? Because on the one hand, you're famous now. On the other hand, you're playing a guy who's, you know, ultimately very winning and sympathetic, but especially in the early going, he's sort of douchey. And so yeah. I'm actually curious, you know, if I may pry. My question, I thought you were going to say, which is my question is, what has this done for your Jewish identity? But first, let's get to what this has done for your dating life. <laughs> do you feel like people are going to read you as Ben Gross or do you feel like you're just, you know, Jaron, but with a little more spending cash and <laughs> visibility? Same, same arms. <laughs> same, same arms, exactly. I think that 
hopefully it's pretty easy. At least when I meet new friends and things like that, it's pretty easy to separate my character from me. But I think all of my friends know me. They know me for me. I've had the same friends since I was a kid. And, you know, all the people that I meet generally, even if they're new, even if they've seen the show or are fans of the show, they get to know me. And I'm pretty different from Ben in a lot of ways. And, you know, the Harry forums is a bit of a similarity. But um, <laughs> are you rushing a frat? I did. I, I rushed before the show came out, actually. I'm in ZBT. Very Jewish of me. Nice. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> we have a strong ZBT listener contingent, so they will really like that. Oh. So you know you got in on your own merits and not because of Ben Gross. Yeah, I was a legacy, so maybe I didn't get in on my own merit. I got in off of my uncle's legacy. Who knows? Look, if we can't be legacy in Jewish fraternities and sororities, what do we have? Right. <laughs> I, I do fit in really well, though. I love being in ZBT, and that is also a part of my unique Jewish identity. Maybe <laughs> Ben Gross will eventually join a frat at uh, Princeton or Yale or wherever I be. He ends up going. Who knows? Jared, what is the goal? Like, what is the dream? What's the role you want to play? What's the superhero franchise you want to be part of? God, the MCU is absolutely the superhero universe that I want to be a part of. But I think for me, roles that are really meaningful and have so many complexities and are so rich and, and have so much depth are really what I love to do. I love when people come up to me and talk to me about how much my character has meant to them and to just do projects that really connect people to my character or people to each other. And I think that for me, I love film. I know I want to do a lot more film. And also I do go to USC and I'm a psychology major there. And my concentration is on abnormal psychology. So the dream role would be to play something really dark and villainous. For example, some of my favorite performances are Anthony Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs and Heath Ledger's Joker. Those are roles that I really would love to dive into. There's not <laughs> a ton right now for me at 20 years old, but eventually down the line, I would love to do that. I'm also getting a little bit interested in directing. I think that on set, uh, in Never Have I Ever, I've had the opportunity to ask lots of questions. A lot of the crew calls me the question master because I won't shut up. But they offer me a lot of their expertise and I'm learning a lot about what it means to be a director from the different directors that we have and from writers and from different departments that really help me kind of build and sculpt a view of what it means to have this holistic approach to acting, to directing, to different parts of the business that I think are important for my future. I love this. From Ben Gross to Hannibal Lecter. I mean, it's like, it's-, it's Yeah, I've, I want to do it all. That'll be one of those things that really messes with our minds. Like, you know, when you see a character you know as a sort of warm fuzzy and he's playing a total sociopath, that's beautifully hostile to your audience, to your fan base. I love it. Absolutely. I will say that I was like, when I logged on, I was like, oh, he's very cool and normal. Like, I was sort of expecting you to be your character in some weird way, which is not fair at all. Yeah, a lot of people do. I, I get that a little bit where they're like, oh, you're actually really cool. And I'm like, oh, thanks. <laughs> I'm like, you're not awkward. <laughs> yeah, you're not an asshole. Wow, that came out of nowhere. You were expecting him to be 6'2 and blonde, but then it turns out he's 5'6 and has hairy forearms. Yeah, exactly. Too bad. Jaron Lewison, it is such a treat to talk to you. The second season of Never Have I Ever comes out July 15th, and we look forward to seeing everything that Ben Gross has to do and everything that you get to do in the future. And thanks for hanging out with us. Thank you guys so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. 
And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Tell me, tell me, in the day or the night, would it kill you to call or write? To the mailbox. First off, the discussion about the word schwanz continues with this this fabulous voice memo. I heard the word schwanz again on today's uh, podcast in passing. I still haven't heard about the correction. You were using it for an anatomical part of the body in the front of somebody's body, but it actually means tail, and it should be in the back of the body. And this is well known uh, when, and it also was used as a derogatory term for somebody who was sort of an idiot. He called them a shrunt, but it had to do with the tail of their body and not him. All right. Any of you have thoughts on Schwanz? Keep them coming. 914-570-4869. Great letter about our friends, the Mormons. Leo, would you read it for us? Absolutely. Dear unorthodox. On a recent episode, Mark referred to a specific cultural move by saying, that's Mormon-level genius. <laughs> I know what he meant when a new set of young missionaries arrived to my neighborhood. They immediately knocked on my door and invited me to Sunday services. Early in the service, the new missionaries were introduced to the kahal, or the congregation, and I noticed a clipboard making its way from adult to adult. I turned to my seated neighbor and inquired about the clipboard. People are signing up for dates to host the new missionaries for a meal in their home, he nonchalantly whispered. The implications of this simple ritual rattled in my mind for the remainder of the day. Not only do the newcomers get fed without spending much needed funds, they form immediate and intimate bonds, breaking bread and companionship with a large swath of the congregation, learning not only the lay of the land, but the social networks of the adult and children populations and where to turn to in time of need. The hometown members learn of their co-religionist communities from faraway lands as the missionaries arrive from Samoa or France or Canada or Mexico and form an intricate web of worldwide connections. I can imagine a local family traveling to Germany and spending a day with a family of a missionary they hosted in their home years ago. What else can Jews learn from the Mormons? With appreciation, Aviv. Palo Alto, California. Aviv, the answer to your question, what else can Jews learn from the Mormons? I am sad to say at, at this point, having had the good fortune of interacting with many Mormon friends, the answer is pretty much freaking everything. Mark, would you agree with this statement? I would. I've spent a lot of time among the Mormons, which makes them sound more exotic than they are. They're people like me and you. And in fact, these days they're asking to be called Latter-day Saints, which is their specific religious term, as opposed to the colloquial, but non-offensive Mormons. Little secret for those people who want to be very crass and think that Jews are good at business. In fact, Mormons are way better at business. And there have been articles about how good the Mormon church is at money and all this stuff. But that's not really, that's silliness. What's really beautiful is their families, which they keep intact at great rates. What's really beautiful is the level of commitment that they have to the community. Not even always theological commitment. Even people who don't believe in the theology often are just very good at staying close to family and those ties. I just want to pick one thing that I've seen. And by the way, I'm mindful that of the people in the community for whom it was not the right community. I'm mindful that as in every community, there are people who have toxic experiences or misogynist experiences or experiences that devalue them. And I, I totally get that. But I, I'm looking on the positive side, as I like to look on the positive side of all communities as a religion journalist. The most amazing thing is how they do religious school, right? So how do Catholics do it? Catholics do it one day a week after school, right? Usually Wednesday afternoons, they have catechism. Sometimes, you know, it's Wednesdays and Sundays. 
Same way that Jews, if they're not doing day school, that's how we do Hebrew schools, like Wednesdays and Sundays. And it's a couple hours each time, and then it takes a break for the summer. And yet it's not, even when it's done very well, as it is at my synagogue, it's just not as many hours and not as much continuity as you would want. Mormons have this brilliant thing, which is they rent out rooms in public high schools before the school day starts. So let's say the school day starts at eight. The Latter-day Saints will rent out a bunch of classrooms from seven to 8 a.m., which it's perfectly legal for religious groups to rent public space on non-school time. Or they'll rent a space across the street. And all the the Latter-day Saint kids will go to, I believe it's called seminary, every morning before school from age like six to 18, seven to 8 a.m. So basically they say, if you're a Mormon kid, you get up an hour earlier. And you do that hour every day. That then allows them to then go to public school and then play sports and be fully American in all sorts of ways. It also allows them to actually know shit. Right. To actually learn something useful rather than waste their time and emerge as ignorant as they were upon entrance. Right. And it's not the three hours that you would get at a Jewish or Catholic school of religious education if you got half the day there. But like an hour a day for 12 years of your life is a lot of learning. I've also had Latter-day Saints tell me it keeps our kids out of trouble because they're not up till midnight, they're up till 11, or they're not up till two, they're up till one. I don't mean to idealize it, but like Jews spend so much time saying, how are we going to do religious school? And I'm thinking like, actually, that's something the Mormons have solved. So what can we learn from them? Prioritize faith, family, and education. You know, we used to be pretty good at that and uh, we have a lot to learn. Speaking of things to learn, my mother's old school song when she was at Girls High in Philadelphia, I knew the first bar or so of it, but Barbara called us and she knew something similar and she was good enough to sing it for us. Hey, Mark. Uh, This is Barbara Brotman in Chicago. And when you sang your mother's school song, I was stunned because that was my camp song. So I loved hearing it and I thought I'd share with you the entire thing because it's an excellent song. It goes, at least how we did it, like this. I go to Camp Deerwood, so pity me. There's not a boy in our vicinity. And every night... I would like DJ Khaled to uh, to get involved in, in a remix for this. Actually, Josh Cross, could you... Maybe, maybe you could do a fun little remix for us. DJ Khaled. I go to Camp Deerwood, so pity me. There's not a boy in our vicinity. And every night at nine, they lock the door. I don't know why the hell I ever came before. I'm gonna pack my bags and homeward bound. I'm gonna turn this camp right upside down. I'm gonna smoke and drink and neck and tech. So what the heck to hell with the whole damn camp? Andrew Gruel is the founder and the head chef of Slapfish Restaurant, which began as a food truck and then became a widely acclaimed brick and mortar restaurant based out of Huntington Beach, California. Chef Gruel has appeared on Food Network shows like Food Truck Face Off and, and this is why he came to our attention, and he recently made news on National Lobster Day by giving away a lobster dish to anyone who couldn't afford one. We didn't even know there was a National Lobster Day. Jews probably wouldn't know that there's a National Lobster Day. We don't get those press releases at Tablet. Anyway, Chef Gruel spoke to Stephanie in the pre-baby era about how he's tried to keep his business and employees afloat during the pandemic. Here's their conversation. Chef Gruel, it is so nice to be with you today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. I have to say, you know, sometimes I get emails from my boss. And when I get an email from my boss, I know I have to do whatever it is she is saying. But the greatest email I got was she sent me a tweet of yours for National Lobster Day. This was June 14th, which I did not know was National Lobster Day. But you basically said for people who are down on their luck, having hard times, come to Slapfish, Huntington Beach, and any lobster dish is on you. And then you wrote an update that you had 268 people who were financially struggling, who stopped in and got to eat lobster. And as a Jewish magazine, there's nothing that makes us happier than people getting free lobster. Some of our hosts keep kosher. I do not. But we just sort of love this story. So can you tell us a little bit about when you started giving away lobster? You know, it's kind of just been something that I do anyway over the years. You know, we've built the business on really working with the community. And one of the 
areas in which we've put a lot of focus is breaking the cycle of homelessness and hunger amongst primarily in Orange County. It's women and children, but more recently, a lot of the elderly actually who have been kind of left out on the streets or don't have the financial means to go into a nursing home. So it's been something that's always in the background for us, right, over the last decade. So any opportunity to call out a chance for people to come in, I'll pick up their tab. I mean, we've done it throughout the pandemic. All children have eaten for free since they shut schools down. A lot of kids don't have school lunch opportunities, et cetera. And that was their one meal a day. So for example, at every single slot fish in Orange County, California, kids eat free seven days a week. So that was really the genesis of it. And, and, and that one went kind of viral, I think because it was lobster and it's like, oh, wow, lobster prices are so high and you're giving it away. But it's kind of just what we do anyway. So, you know, it's interesting. I've, I've been looking through your Twitter account and it's you've been documenting the way you've dealt with the pandemic. You say you kept all your team members, took losses to do so, paid unlimited sick time to avoid spread and even paid rent for many team members struggling. Of course, that was in response to someone saying the labor market is fine if you you know take care of your employees. So can you tell us a little bit about what it's been like for you through the pandemic, how you sort of as a as a business owner and as a human dealt with those issues. Yeah. And that's a, that's a great point there as a human, right? Cause you kind of have to put humanity first. I think it was Mark Cuban who had kind of tweeted a, a very broad stroke approach to if you treated your employees, well, you're doing fine right now. If you didn't, you're not doing fine. And I wish it was that simple, right? There's obviously a lot more nuance to it. He says, sometimes being nice is its own reward, which is some real business yeah. lessons from Mark Cuban. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And once again, like distilling into a simple message and kind of sticking with whether it's the golden rule or what whatever cliche you want to use, I understand the sentiment. It's just unfortunately throughout the pandemic, everything is so nuanced and it's state by state, right? And it's business by business, industry by industry. So for us, first and foremost, our team members are, are really our family members. So it was about making sure that everybody had some sort of a safety net and what could we do without totally losing the business, right? Because, you know, we kind of had to keep that platform afloat so that we could then use that to help others. If we lose the platform and we sink, well, then we've lost the entire enterprise of health. At the end of the day, the bottom line was just trying to understand where this was going, how we could predict and forecast so that we could stay afloat but then continue to do every single thing that we could, taking losses in order to still develop and implant ourselves deeper within the community. You know, it's so interesting trying to navigate those two pieces, which is being good to your employees, taking care of them. And then, as you say, running the business, right? Because if the business shuts down, then everyone is screwed. And now, of course, you're helping the community beyond your restaurant staff. I mean, how do you weigh those two considerations of the business needs to stick around, right? So that anyone can have jobs, so that people can get this food but also you want to be a good person. Yeah, I mean, we have to take care of ourselves first. It's the, it's the analogy of you're on the airplane and the oxygen masks come down and they tell you, you always got to put it on yourself before you put it on your child. Instinctually, right, or viscerally, you think, oh, you've got to give it to the child first. But if you pass out because you have no oxygen, well, then you're worthless for your child who needs your help. And I think the same principle applies here for us with the businesses is we've all, obviously we've got to take care of and maintain our ship, both from a human perspective and even, even the mechanics of a restaurant, right? Having supply, paying bills. And then from there, we can help those around us who perhaps don't have the oxygen mask on in this cliche. You know, it's funny because you're doing something that's so hyper-local, right? Giving food to people who are in your community in need in whatever way. But your tweets got to us. I'm wondering how you've been able to use social media as sort of an amplifier. And I imagine that's good for business, right? If I live near you, I hadn't heard of you guys, but saw on Twitter that you were doing this great thing, I think I would probably be more inclined to drive over and support you. So have you seen that boost? Yeah, yeah. That's the one good takeaway, I think, from the pandemic is, is that social media, in so much as it can be divisive, it also can really amplify the messaging, as you say, right? So the beacon is louder and we're able to reach a much larger audience just because so many more people now, especially being a little bit more confined, are spending their time on their smartphone or on Twitter, on Facebook, Instagram, what have you. And I've, I've also said from the very beginning of the pandemic, in the absence of sports, right? I mean, I would say at least 60 to 70% of Americans are deeply vested in sports, maybe 80 or 90% are aware. That's all gone, right? So what are those people going to do when they have this kind of competitive need to follow a team is they turned all of that into politics. They turned it into current events. So they were following these issues the same way they were following sports, 
in the past. <laughs> and while that's, that can be incredibly divisive in the sense of the, the competitive nature, I also think it's been good because it's raised awareness for a lot of issues that those people otherwise would have been tuning out. So, you know, good and bad cuts both ways, but the social media element's been huge. And then even for us on that, like that lobster giveaway, 268 groups that came to the restaurant here in Orange County. And I would say the lion's share of that number had never been to my restaurant before. And they only found out about it because of this promotion. That's amazing. Chef Integral, thank you for being on Unorthodox. Thank you for all the great work you're doing. Our listeners can find you at Chef Gruel. They can find your restaurants all over the country, Slapfish and more. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Mazel tops. Leo, do you have a mazel top? Well, you know, I feel that from now until until she's 18, probably we just have to give a mazel top every week to Edith Isadora Cohen, who we haven't met yet, but who we already love, like two weird, creepy, proud uncles. Uncles, yeah. But I want to read a beautiful letter that, that touched me and then tell a story. This arrived Tuesday at 7.35 p.m. The subject line is, so it's no Jeff Goldblum, but <laughs> I'm at the Brooklyn Cyclones game with, oh, maybe 500 other people low attendance night, and I'm 99.9% sure I spotted Liel with his family. I listened to last week's episode this morning and wondered why he didn't see Team Israel play FDNY here at Maimonides Park last week. And here he is today. It's Bashert, which auto-corrected to beanery, by the way. <laughs> Joni. P.S. I did not say hi and was not able to convince my braver husband to do so, even though we're big fans. So this letter arrived at 735. At approximately 739, I, uh, you know, sort of meandered up to get ice cream or take Hudson to the bathroom or something. And Joni and Bill did come up and say hi. And I was so happy to meet them. And to them, a huge mazel tov. And I hope they enjoyed the Brooklyn Cyclones victory as much as I did. And uh, see you next week at Maimonides Park. I'm just going to give a mazel tov to all the Olympic athletes. I'm not the biggest Olympics fan in the world, but I do like non-political traditions that bring people together. And at their best, that's what the Olympics are. And I just think it's, especially with COVID, it's remarkable that they're happening. And I'm proud of all the athletes who are competing. And it's time for the credits. But remember, if you stay after the credits, you get to hear the letter from my grandfather's son's adoption agency. So stick around. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send your thoughts to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. Go to bit.ly slash unorthoshirt to find our unorthodox shirts, mugs, and onesies. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarfreb and Ader. Associate producer is Robert Scaramuccia. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Theme music by Golem online at golemrocks.com. Mailbox theme by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision by Gabby Kirsch, the marketing director of the University of Wisconsin Hillel, as well as of the University of Delaware and Maryland Hillels. I feel like she's been spending way too much time on Delaware and she needs to up her Maryland and Wisconsin game. I feel the exact opposite way. More Delaware, please. <laughs> Shalom, friends. Here's a lightly edited reading of the letter entitled Adoptive Family Profile for Joanna Oppenheimer, prepared by Tippi Young, provided on July 14th, 2021, Spence Chapin. Here, editorial insertion, the Louise Wise Agency is no longer in existence and their files were handed over to the Spence Chapin Agency. Here we go. Spence Chapin is bound by law with regards to the information we can provide. New York state law only permits the release of non-identifying information that fits the following specific categories. Age of the parents in years at the birth of the adoptee, heritage of the parents, which shall include nationality, ethnic background, and race, education, yada, yada, health history of parents, talents, hobbies, and special interests of parents, yada, 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 yada. Okay, here's where we get to the stuff, right? So if you're going to help me out here, this is now the section titled Adoptive Parents. So it's what we know, what the Spence Chapin Agency is allowed to tell us about the couple that adopted my biological uncle. So these people might be in your family. Listen closely. Adoptive parents. The adoptive parents had been married for seven and a half years. Okay, of the home study. And they were described as an intelligent and cultured couple who were well-regarded in their community. At the time of the home study, the adoptive parents owned a, quote, large and beautiful 21-room house 
in the Midwestern region of the United States, and they were parenting an adoptive daughter who was about one year old. Their daughter was described as having blonde hair, blue eyes, and a, quote, lovely disposition. The adoptive parent's home was located near a school and synagogue, and it was said to be clean, comfortable, and well-furnished with live-in servants. The record indicated that the adoptive parents were wealthy, and they were active in a number of social organizations, including country clubs, fraternal organizations, social clubs, a beneficiary society, and religious organizations. The adoptive parents spoke of their wish for their daughter to have a sibling and of their feeling that they could provide a good home for a child. It was reported that the adoptive parents initially considered adopting children in their home state, but they became worried when their plans to adopt spread amongst their community and the potential for embarrassment if the birth parents were part of the same community and heard about them adopting their child. It was reported that the adoptive parents consulted with their attorney in regard to adoption, and their attorney advised them to adopt a child born in another state and referred them to Louise Wise. The adoptive mother was born in the United States and was 32 years old at the time of the home study. Okay, so she was 32 on June 15th, 1931, or a little bit earlier at the time of the home study. She was described as very pretty and intelligent with a medium build and pleasing personality. Her race was reported to be white and she practiced the Jewish faith. The record stated the adoptive mother attended high school in the Midwestern region of the United States and graduated from a women's college in the Northeastern region of the United States. At the time of the home study, she worked as a full-time homemaker. She was the only child in her family. She was said to have come from a, quote, broad-minded family of business people who owned a large clothing store in the Midwestern region of the United States. The adoptive mother's father was deceased at the time of the home study, and her mother and aunt lived with her and her husband. The adoptive father was born in the United States and was 45 years old at the time of the home study. He was described as a, quote, rather large and, quote, good-looking man with a good character. His race was reported to be white, and he practiced the Jewish faith. The record indicated that the adoptive father attended a technical school and two years of college at a university in the northeastern region of the United States. At the time of the home study, he was temporarily retired. The record indicated he had worked for 12 years as a clothing and shoe manufacturer and had sold the business. He was stated to be in good health. It was reported that both of the adoptive father's parents were deceased at the time of the home study. Next section, birth and early development. Your biological brother, again, this is to my mom, so this is my uncle. Your biological brother was born on June 15th, 1931 at a hospital in Pennsylvania. He weighed seven and a half pounds at birth. And it then goes on to talk about the social worker who looked in on him and where he was fostered until he was adopted and so forth and so on. And then we pick up by learning that he joined his adoptive family in his new home when he was five and a half months old. Okay, so that's the end of that. Now this is just me. Let's think about what we've learned. We've learned that we're looking for someone who was born June 15th, 1931 in Philadelphia and was adopted into a family in the Midwest that was quite wealthy, that had a house with 21 rooms in it and had servants and so forth and so on. The mom at the time of the adoption was 32 was very pretty and had gone to a women's college in the Northeast. The dad was 45 and was retired from apparently a fairly lucrative time in the clothing and shoe business. Okay, so here we have it. This is a Jewish family in the Midwest with a lot of money, 13 years apart, 32 and 45. Mom went to a women's college in the Northeast. They can't have children, it seems. They've adopted a baby girl who, when she's about one year old, gets a baby brother who is my uncle. Honestly, this could not describe more than one family in America. 45 and 32 years old, mom went east for women's college, dad went to technical college, then worked in clothing and shoe manufacturing, two adoptive children, a boy and a girl, 21-room house. I mean, this only describes one family. Now, of course, this is the family's description in 1930, so it's not going to be immediately recognizable to any of you, but I have to think that one of you out there knows who this couple is, this long-dead couple and they know who this guy is who would be 90 years old or probably is no longer with us. And maybe it's you who's listening, who's the son of that person, who's my cousin. I don't know. But call us, 914-570-4869, or send an email to me at moppenheimer at tabletmag.com. And J. Crew, I thank you.